Hello and welcome to Dialogue. Leaders and delegations from throughout the Western Hemisphere arrived in Los Angeles this week for the Summit of the Americas. Even before the event kicked off, it was already embroiled in controversy as Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela were not invited, prompting Mexican President Andres Manuel López Obrador to skip the gathering. So, what's on the agenda of the high-profile summit? What does Mexico's absence mean to the gathering, as well as U.S. influences in the region? To explore these questions and more, I'm joined today by Laura Carson, director of the Americas Program for the Center of International Policy in Mexico City, Maria Cruz Maguan, vice president of the National Economist Club, Charles Tang, chairman of Brazil-China Chamber of Commerce and Industry, and Professor Jiang Shixue from Shanghai University. That's our topic. I'm Xu Qingduo. Okay, welcome to the discussion, Laura. I will start with you. This is the ninth、uh, summit of Americas. So tell us, what is the summit of America? What is the purpose of such a gathering? This has been going on, as we know, since 1994, and the purpose is to unite the region. With a plan to confront some of the major issues, these have always been a, a stage for certain types of conflicts, and sometimes for for showing unity as well. But we've seen a number of showdowns in the summits, and so it's kind of a risky a risky thing for the United States, which uses these summits in order to oftentimes impose. A U.S.-led agenda. We saw the failure of the summit in 2005 when the United States in, attempted to impose a free trade agreement of the Americas, and there was a rebellion by South American countries. And in this one, we're also seeing a certain type of a rebellion, and that is、uh, the refusal of several leaders, important key leaders. In the continent to attend, as a result of the exclusion of Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela. So once again, what the, what we're seeing is this situation set up where the United States has a very specific agenda in mind. The president wants to demonstrate leadership, and yet、uh, there are differences of opinion within the continent. And this is not really a forum in which those differences can be resolved. This has been really the key. The key、uh, problem at the root of these summits that there isn't really a dialogue space open for looking at how to confront problems, but rather a U.S.-led agenda that's either accepted or rejected by other countries.、Mm-hmm. Charles, obviously, this gathering,、uh, you know, even before it is started,、uh, it was overshadowed by this controversy, as we said,、uh, uh, because of the lack of invite to the three countries: Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua. Um, so, what do you make of this、uh, controversy, or、uh, say the absentee from these three countries? As you know,、uh, United States always had a very intense, or you can say, heavy involvement with the Latin America, which, under the Monroe Doctrine, was America's backyard. And、uh, <clears throat> throughout the years, United States、uh, had a very heavy involvement in supporting. Uh, many dictatorships in South America、uh, and Central America, but、uh, during the Bush years, of course, the United States only had eyes for Iraq and sort of more or less ignored Latin America. And today, as you know, 
China has a very heavy involvement with most countries in Latin America. And uh, <clears throat> due to the exclusion of several countries, uh, you know, we have this controversy, which was really, I think, uh, quite unnecessary to show the American leadership and unity. But uh, so several leaders uh, have not been very uh, kind to the exclusion of several of the Latin American leaders. Now, we, we are seeing a move again to become, uh, you know, moving more left. Uh, recently, you know, uh, the young president, Boric of Chile, um, and uh, Petro will probably, may probably be the winner in Colombia. And the first time in Colombia, recent history, you will have a left-leaning president. Argentina, of course, is very closely <clears throat> entwined with China. Uh, and, you know, China had been making big inroads into Latin America because of the tremendous amount of investments and uh, trade. Here in Brazil, for example, last year, the surplus, the trade surplus with China was over $40 billion, a total of about $140 billion of trade. Uh, Brazil had become one of the major suppliers of grains and animal proteins to China. So, you know, Brazil, although the Brazilian president is the very much aligned with uh, Donald Trump, going forward, uh, Brazil needs China, really, and uh, China also needs Brazil. So I think that it's a important alliance for the strategic prosperity, strategic alliance for the prosperity of both countries. Yeah, business obviously is a very important uh, investment, um, you know, to people's uh, the improving of livelihoods uh, for their standard of living. Um, Professor Jiang, you know, the U.S. side, when they basically uh, said there's no invite to the three countries, uh, they cited this intergovernment uh, America uh, doctrine, basically uh, the charter, they say democracy is enshrined in the charter, um, but then there's a there, there's issue. People would ask, you know, why uh, were Cuba invited uh, for the past uh, couple of summit, and so why now Cuba? Like a, you know, there's not much change in Cuba now. Cuba is not up to the standard anymore. You know, uh, uh, the U.S. always believes that uh, Cuba is a uh, so-called non-democratic country. So. Uh, so Cuba has been uh, uh, kept out of the door of the America's organization, like uh, OAS and also the Summit uh, of the Americas. Well, uh, Cuban leader were invited, uh, I think, uh, twice, uh, once in Panama and the other in Peru. But as you know, uh, uh, now the U.S. hosts the ninth summit. So, so the U.S. has the authority to uh, uh, to choose who should be invited. Okay, so uh, if this time uh, uh, the summit uh, uh, takes place in other countries, uh, I believe Cuba will be invited. 
And secondly, let me say that uh, uh, in the past several years, uh, when Obama was in power, so there was a very big improvement for the bilateral relationship between U.S. and Cuba. So Cuban leaders were invited twice. But now, as you know, uh, although uh, Biden uh, lose the, some kind of restrictions uh, a little bit, uh, not long ago, but still, you know, the U.S. considers uh, Cuba as a kind of enemy. So it's uh, it's logical to believe that the U.S. will not invite Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua. Laura, you know, if you take a look at the U.S. Uh, foreign policy making, for example, President Biden has stressed very much about democracy versus, say, authoritarian author, uh, you know, states. Uh, last year, there's a summit of democracies, and then now, uh, again, uh, democracy uh, is standing out in terms of the gathering. Uh, so it, is there a concern, you know, people would say, uh, is there too much ideology? If we stress too much ideological differences, it's like, oh, we have different political system, we have different values, so we cannot engage with each other, we cannot do business with each other. I mean, suppose if uh, there's a presence of Cuba, probably it's easier to talk about uh, the problem of immigration for the U.S. and other countries. That's right. The presence of countries, even where there's disagreements, is what leads to a broader dialogue, which is what's necessary to resolve some of the major challenges within the region. And there is a very deep concern that this summit from the start with the announcement, although it wasn't confirmed until the last minute, that these three countries would be excluded was too ideological and it was too oriented toward U.S. politics in the sense that part of the reason that Biden began with this announcement was that uh, he's looking toward the midterm elections and he's concerned about the Florida vote, always a key state in which there are a number of Cuban Americans um, and a certain part of that group, a diminishing part of that group, is very anti uh, the Cuban government. So he's playing to that crowd in a sense. And this really rubbed the wrong way for many leaders in Latin America who were looking forward to a, a policy from the Biden administration that was a little more uh, in the lines of what the Obama administration began with. Cuba was readmitted to the Organization of American States in 2009 under the Obama administration, and Obama in the, in the summit greeted Raul Castro. And this was a way to bring the continent together and made a strong statement about the right to self-determination among the countries. This is not the Biden policy. And we saw it in this summit, but we've been seeing it all along. There's another uh, another round of investment in so-called democracy promotion programs that seek regime change change in the most extreme versions and that seek to, uh, to, to kind of tinker with internal politics in other countries. And we've seen a lot of statements in this regard. It's really important to keep in mind that when we talk about who's democratic and who's not democratic and who fits the, the, the OAS charter and who doesn't, there's a complete double standard as well. Uh, Biden has singled out these three left-wing countries from the very outset and yet has not said a word about Haiti that does not have a legitimately elected government now and uh, that does not that does not live up to the charter as well. There are concerns about democracy in many other countries in the region that have more right-wing governments 
And yet, as I say, these are not mentioned at the time. So this is the ideological division that Biden has made. We're seeing what looks like almost an attempt to revive an alliance of the Americas. That is to say, an alliance only among neoliberal states that has a number of, of objectives. One is to isolate the left-wing countries, which are now a sizable bloc. And it would be very difficult to isolate them. As you mentioned, we're looking at the election in Colombia. We're looking at the election in Brazil that could make that block really very a large part of Latin America. And the other is to block the further expansion of Chinese interests in the continent. What Latin American countries are saying regarding that, or a large part of them, is that uh, we'll choose who we, who we do business with. And the days of absolute Monroe Doctrine U.S. hegemony are over. I think that's one of the messages, strong messages that Lopez Obrador wanted to send by saying that he would not accept an exclusionary summit. And that's a message that the other countries that followed his lead have wanted to send. But it's creating a huge vacuum, especially in the agenda on immigration, because the entire Northern Triangle, which is to say Northern Central America, Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras are not sending their heads of state to the, to the summit. So it'll be, I think it'll be a summit of, of declarations without a lot of meat behind them. Mm-hmm. Well, Mary Cruz, let's focus a little bit on that, uh, uh, this democracy thing, you know, um, the, the U.S. said uh, because of uh, uh, lacking, uh, say, you know, not meeting the standard uh, for democracy, so they, you know, didn't send invited to the three countries. But then uh, some reporters would question the White House, like, uh, well, at the same time, uh, the U.S. is planning to visit for President Biden to visit Saudi Arabia. Uh, so people are saying that uh, at the least is, is to say that, I mean, is, is that uh, the lack of consistency of U.S. foreign policy? There has been there has been instability for the last few years in the world, and that includes the United States, and that's affecting the consistency of their policies. We are dealing with more constraints. We are dealing with more crisis. The United States has this big issue right now in their hands, the, the war between Ukraine and Russia. I'm not saying that they don't have more resources to deal with, with Latin America, but definitely it's having an impact. Now, I think the message that the United States wanted to send in this um, summit is that it was going to be focused on democracy, on freedom, and on security. And they thought that the three countries that were excluded do not represent those goals. I assume that's my personal opinion, that that's why they were not invited. Now, the immigration issue that Laura was mentioning, I think we should talk about that. What's the impact that that's going to have? In the, most of the immigrants are coming from Latin America, whether it's uh, Central America or South America. It's not so much with Mexico only, as it was years ago, but it's coming from Venezuela, from Brazil, and of course from Central America. What is the impact of this forum, of the immigration on the forum, on the conversations, on the positions of the presidents of the countries that are having these huge immigrations of their citizens coming to the United States, 
undocumented because they are not coming in, uh, you know, following the U.S. laws. I think all of that is going to be talked about. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, Charles, you know, do you see immigration, I mean, which is obviously uh, one of the top concerns for Americans, you know, in terms of their southern borders, uh, is that also an issue of Americas, of, um, you know, let's say Latin American countries? Most countries in Latin America or South America have been facing immigration problems as well. For example, there has been a tremendous exodus of Venezuelans going to Colombia and coming to Brazil. Uh, Brazil now has a lot of Haitians who left Haiti and uh, they're coming to Brazil and establishing themselves in Brazil. Brazil has quite a liberal policy of accepting immigrants from other countries. Uh, There's a huge community of Syrians in Brazil. Brazil, like the United States, is a country of immigrants. But the Summit of Americas, instead of showing unity and dialogue between the different parties, uh, has been a sign of division. It's us against them. You know, and the problem is, when you take a look at Bolivia, uh, Peru, Honduras, Chile, and uh, Argentina are all left-leaning countries. And if Lula becomes president of Brazil again, of course, Brazil would become a left-leaning country as well. So I think that it's not a very wise uh, time to create divisions rather than trying to have dialogue to unite everybody uh, with common goals. And this emphasis on democracy is very important to President Biden. But uh, I think that uh, many Americans also believe that he might want to fix democracy at home before uh, being such a mission, you know, trying to convince the world uh, that uh, the American style democracy would be the best. I think that uh, today, United States democracy is a bit dysfunctional. Uh, yes, uh, Laura, you know, speak of that, uh, you know, speak of the division, the democracy here, and uh, the summit, obviously, uh, Mexican President uh, uh, Obrador has made it official that uh, he will boycott it, uh, you know, escape this summit, and together with other countries, Honduras included. Uh, what do you make of that uh, in terms of the U.S. influence in the region? Some say, oh, that's the weakening of the U.S. influence. Uh, you know, the countries, I mean, a numerous, quite a number of countries are basically saying no to the way the U.S. handled this uh, gathering. From a perspective of, uh, you know, decolonizing, which is is a goal of the United Nations and of the world in, for, in a formal sense, U.S. influence in many senses should be diminishing. What we want to see is a respect for self-determination. And I think we are seeing uh, that it is diminishing in many senses with this decision, especially by Mexico. There was a tremendous amount of pressure from the Biden administration of Mexico. We've seen uh, innumerable, practically, diplomats coming down to pressure him, phone calls, all levels, Senator Dodd, Biden's representative, 
the vice president, you know, there's been a tremendous amount of pressure because he, Biden really felt that the physical presence of Lopez Obrador in the summit was critical to the success of it. And he lost on that. And that also becomes not just a kind of a political win in terms of taking an independent stand from the government of Mexico, but it's also a way of asserting these new spaces and initiatives that are happening in the continent that are reviving in some ways because they have been around for a while, which is, for example, uh, strengthening the South-South ties within the continent that give them greater leverage against the asymmetry of power that's represented by the United States when we talk about the Americas. For example, the community of Latin American and Caribbean states called CELAC by its Spanish initials is one of the important spaces that the Mexican government and other the left-leaning governments have been trying to fortify in this sense. That begins to change the relationship of power within the continent. And I think in a positive way, because it creates more space for national sovereignty among the smaller countries that are able to unite and and look at relationships among themselves that could be far less controlled than the bilateral relationships with the United States. So is U.S. power diminishing? Perhaps. I think that it does when you have these left-wing governments that come to power and they want to take a different path. And I think that this is important and positive at this time because when we look specifically at the Biden agenda for this summit, what they're putting out there in terms of both um, solutions for economic issues and uh, for immigration issues are not positive for our region. Uh, the economics is the same as we've been seeing in the past, the imposition of mega projects, opening up markets to transnational investment. And those are some of the factors that have deepened inequality, have deepened poverty and have displaced people forcing migration from many of these countries. So if we continue on this path of more of the same, we're likely to see the very problems that they're seeking to solve uh, intensify in the future. It's time for mm-hmm. this issue. Yeah, uh, Professor Jiang, you know, uh, speak of the relationship between Latin American countries and the U.S. Of course, the U.S. is uh, the largest country, you know, most powerful country. Uh, uh, but at the same time, uh, you know, there's a principle of sovereignty, you know, countries being equal, whether they are large and small. Uh, there's, a, there's a necessary respect for sovereignty, uh, despite their political systems or differences over there. Um, but it seems to me like there's the expectations are also very different and for the U.S. Probably uh, very important for immigration issue because that's to their heart. Um, but for a lot of Latin American countries, it's really about uh, you know they're looking forward to more investment, you know, more trade and more development, uh, which probably can help you know uh, to solve these root causes of of immigration issue here. Uh, Yes, uh, as you mentioned, that uh, the, the so-called uh, the so-called migration issue is is the uh, most complicated uh, complicated issue for the U.S. Latin America relationship, as far as I can uh, understand. You know, there are so many uh, uh, migrants uh, going from Central America or South America uh, to the U.S.-Mexico border. You know, some of the people even go to the borders on foot. So it's uh, it's really uh, uh, hard to understand how 
how they can reach the U.S.-Mexico border. And that's why Trump wanted to build a wall, and the wall is uh, almost uh, half completed. Uh, well, I would say that uh, the U.S. needs cheap labor from Latin America, and Latin America uh, need a U.S. dollar. So every year, many countries get uh, the so-called uh, the so-called U.S. dollar remittance, and this amount of remittance is is even bigger than foreign investment for some countries in Central America. So if the U.S. and Latin America can deal with this migration issue in a nice way, well, that will be a win-win. But uh, very sorry to see that uh, these migrants are not treated in a nice way. You know, the U.S. always say its human rights protection is the best. But how does the U.S. treat these Latin American migrants in a very, very terrible way? China has become uh, the top trading partner for a few Latin American countries in this region. And uh, it, that's said to be the, one of the concerns for the U.S. to engage with this region more closely. Um, but in a, in a way, you know, China's investment probably has prompted Washington to do more, uh, to engage more closely with the regional countries. Yes, I think that is one of the motivations for having a closer relationship. Right now, we already know the details of what they've announced in terms of Central America. They've announced $3.2 billion in private sector investment for the very reason that my colleagues were mentioning, that the United States economy is not in a position to uh, to give out a lot in foreign aid at this point because of the pandemic crisis and because of all its com other commitments abroad and to its own people, uh, what we're seeing when we look closely at what they've announced in terms of these packages of support to Northern Central America is that they're rehashing some uh, funds that were already appropriated in the past and repackaging them to present them as a new uh, form of support, which happens a lot. But then also that they're, it's heavily weighted toward investments in the private sector. Now, in Honduras and these other countries that we've been watching closely for a long time, when we look at many of those projects of private sector investment, what we're seeing is that they're not truly benefiting the countries in which they're implanted. They are, in many cases, causing conflicts over land and displacing people, actually contributing to migration. In other cases, they're contributing to a situation of, of uh, very cheap and exploited labor that in the end, you know, they could say that they offered so many jobs, but then in the end, they're not the quality jobs. They're not the kinds of jobs that really feed a healthy economy. So that we have to look closely at what this private investment means when we're talking about the new coalition of MasterCard, Visa, Microsoft, PepsiCo. These are some of the big corporations that are at the center of this $3.2 billion effort. Uh, that's that's really one of the problems. And then, of course, the United States could do something very simple that would really help development, which is to start forgiving debt. Again, in the case of Honduras, under the narco dictatorship of Juan Orlando Hernandez, who's now been indicted in the United States for drug trafficking, Honduras incurred a large debt with the United States, much, much of it for military and police equipment to fight the war on drugs. 
which actually ended up expanding drug trafficking through the country because this is a failed model throughout the region. If the United States were to forgive some of that debt, Honduras would be in a much better position to get on its feet and begin to improve the economy in order to create jobs that would keep people at home. Because, again, everyone is completely right. We've talked to hundreds of migrants coming up here through Mexico that these people don't choose to leave their homes. They're forced out of their homes by either economic conditions or by the violence that's taken home with the hold of the countries under poor governments and also under many of the militarized security policies of the United States. Well, with that, we come to the end of today's discussion. Uh, you can also find us on the CGT app or on YouTube. I'm Xi Jinjo. Many thanks to our guests. Thanks for being with us. See you next time.